Amen. You may be seated. If you'll go ahead and find your Bibles, open them up, turn them on to 2 Timothy chapter 3. If you didn't uh, bring a Bible, we'll, we should have the verses on the screen behind me for you to follow along with Coventry Place. Thank you guys so much for that. I really appreciated that. And uh, so proud of Jenna, one of our own over there. Jenny did a great job and just very, very thankful for you and, and thankful for the ministry uh, that you guys have within the community. We're starting a new series today called The Big Picture. And what we're going to try to help you do in this series is we're going to try to help you connect the major events of the Bible and, and kind of go up high and kind of look down on what is the major theme and what is the progression of thought in Scripture? Here's something that, that I see. I see a lot of people have a commitment to Christ. They, they come to church. They enjoy church. They enjoy the various activities of church. And whenever you come, you open the Bible and normally like in the sermon, we'll look at one passage or you go to life group and you'll look at a passage. And so you familiarize yourself with various verses and Scriptures, but you don't really understand, okay, how does the Bible fit together from Genesis to Revelation. And so in this series, that's what we're trying to help you understand is how the Bible is connected and unified. Uh, back after the World Cup soccer tournament, I decided that I needed to find a, a soccer team. Now, I know that really deeply distresses my friend Andrew back there, but 10 years ago, I thought it would never happen to me either. But uh, I decided, hey, you know, I'm getting older, and so maybe I need to find a slower sport. And so I decided to find a soccer team. And so I began researching, where do you begin when you've never followed soccer in your life? Well, I decided I was going to be a Premier League soccer fan. I mean, after all, it's Premier League, right? So I said, that's, that's what I'll choose, but which team do I choose? So here was my, my thought. I began looking at my ancestry, and my ancestors come from England. So I began trying to figure out, okay, wh where was it that, that they lived within England? And as I was investigating this, and this wasn't like Ph.D. level in research. This is one man one night on the Internet trying to look this up, okay? But as I'm looking at this, I discovered that my ancestors lived more in the southern part of England and then also around London, and we actually fought in some battles against the people from Manchester and Liverpool. So I couldn't be a Manchester or Liverpool soccer fan, so uh, it left me with the London teams. And so I discovered that some of my ancestors allegedly fought in, in a battle where they were defending Stamford Bridge. Well, there happens to be a soccer team that plays at Stamford Bridge. Goal! That's right. So I became a fan of Chelsea at that point, which is in first place. It's great. Uh, so throughout the soccer season here, which do you know, like lasts the whole year. I mean, it like never ends, but throughout the soccer season, I've been trying to familiarize myself with the sport, learn the players on my team, learn how to talk the lingo. And so you're not a fan, you're a supporter and they're not uniforms, they're kits and they're not games, they're, they're fixtures and all this different stuff like that. And kind of learn a little bit about that and watch a few games. And, 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 and one of the things that I've, I've come to conclude is that you know, I have my favorite team. I know which uniforms are there, so I don't root for the wrong team. And, and, and I know that it's a bunch of men running around, kicking a ball, trying to get into a goal. But basically, 
I have no clue what the sport's about. You know, I don't know the strategy. I don't know exactly what's happening. I'm still soccer illiterate. And, and I find that that's kind of a parallel of what happens when it comes to the Bible. We, we, we have our favorite verses. We like it. We, we cheer. We attend. But we're really not sure what the big picture is all about. In fact, many of us, when it comes to the big picture, we're biblically illiterate. And so we want to fight that. We want to help you understand what Scripture is all about. And so let me begin the series this week with this question. What makes the Bible so special? What makes the Bible so special? And I'm going to give you four answers to that question. Now, certainly we could come up with many more answers to that, but I want to talk to you about four. And the first is this, that as Christians, and our gathering as a church together is a gathering of Christians, and as Christians, there's about two billion of us in the world, broadly speaking, as Christians, we view the Bible as the inspired, revealed Word of God. So to us as believers, it's more than just a good book. It it is the Word of God. It is our holy, sacred scriptures, and it has a deep meaning because of our understanding of it. So in 2 Timothy chapter 3, you find a, a great passage on the scriptures. Now, here's what the Bible says, beginning in verse 12. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a young man named Timothy. And he says, in fact, all those who want to live a godly life in Christ will be persecuted. Now, several things stand out to me here. He says, first of all, if you want to live a godly life in Christ, how many of us want that? We want to, we want to be a godly person. We want to live that life. He says, if that's what you want, understand you will be persecuted. There will be some people that disagree with you. There will be some people that do not like you. There will be some people that treat you badly for no other reason at all except for the fact that you're a follower of Christ. He goes on to say in verse 13, evil people and imposters will become worse deceiving and being deceived. So there's two groups of people here. First of all, you have the haters. You have, you have evil people, people that are just running away from God that will try to attack God's people. And then the second group are imposters, people that attend church with you, people that look the part, talk the lingo, but they're not, they're not real. In fact, they are deceivers, and they're trying to deceive you from that which is really the truth. There will always be imposters within the body. Now, in verse 14, Paul says, But as for you, you're the one trying to follow God. As for you, this is what you're supposed to do. Continue in what you have learned and firmly believe. Don't stop continuing in your growth, that which you know, that which you believe. You know those who taught you. Now, this is important for Timothy because he knew his mom. He knew his grandmother. They had been very influential in his life. He knew the Apostle Paul. And so Paul says, don't forget the testimony of the individuals that have taught you right and wrong, that have taught you the ways of the Lord, that have taught you what it means to believe in Christ. Look at their lives and look at their character. Verse 15 And you know that from childhood you have known the sacred scriptures, which are able to give you wisdom for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So all the way back in childhood, you became familiar with the Bible. And he says those scriptures have power and they have revelation, which helps you understand what it means to be saved through your faith in Christ Jesus. Then he says this about the Bible. He says, all Scripture 
is inspired by God. In the Greek language, that literally means God breathed. It comes from within the essence of God, and it is profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. The Scriptures teach us the ways of God. They rebuke us whenever we go astray, but they don't just leave us in the wilderness. They also correct us and show us where we need to be and how we can get there. And they train us in the ways of righteousness so that the man uh, or woman of God may be complete and equipped, ready to go for every good work. So the Scriptures themselves teach us that as believers, the Bible, though the Bible is not God, the Bible is supposed to be very, very special and sacred to us because it reveals to us who God is and and how, how we know Him and how we are to live for Him. Now, secondly, the Bible is special because historically, the Bible is the world's most significant work of literature. Do you realize that the Bible is the best-selling book of all time? I'm told by the Guinness Book of World Records that they estimate that there are 5 billion copies of the Bible in existence. Talk about a New York Times bestseller. 5 billion copies. It's been translated into 343 languages in its entirety. There are 2,123 languages that have at least one book of the Bible in their native tongue. 85% of Americans have a Bible within their household, according to the Barna Research Group. And within those households, most homes have 4.3 Bibles within the house. It's had a major impact on language, on literature, on film, in art. You see the Bible's impact in health care. Think about the names of our hospitals. You have the Presby Hospitals, which comes from the Presbyterian church. You have the Methodist hospitals, which comes from the Methodist church right out on the front of the building. There's a big cross. You have the Baylor health care system, which if you don't know, Baylor is kind of code for Baptist, uh, the, the Baptist health care system, if you will. And, and, uh, and in a lot of those hospitals, you'll see scripture verses on the wall. You'll see chapels for people to pray in. And, and those hospitals were started by Christian people who read the Scriptures and started caring not just for uh, spiritual needs but also for physical needs. Education. The Bible has had massive impact on education. You may not be aware of this, but the Ivy League schools, each one of them was originally started to teach uh, men who were going into ministry the Scriptures. That was their original intent to teach people the Scriptures. If you look at our nation, if you look at our Declaration of Independence, if you read the preambles of the various constitutions in our states, in our nation's constitution, you will find that, that our, our founding documents are all littered with, with references to the Bible, to Christianity, that much of our morality, much of our law uh, has its roots in the Bible. Now, a person can deny the truth of the Bible. I get this. I understand not everybody's a Christian. I get the fact that some people say, I don't follow the Bible, it's not for me, I'm not a Christian, and and they don't go that route. A person can deny the truth of the Bible, but a serious thinker cannot minimize nor deny the impact that the Bible has had upon our culture and upon the world. It is by far the most significant work of literature ever in the history of the world. Thirdly, the Bible is special because of real-world experience. Now think about this. For centuries, billions of people, that's a lot of people, 
billions of people in multiple cultures, in different locations, over different generations, have lived their life according to the teachings of Scripture. It has been their moral foundation. It has been their guide. It has been what brought wisdom into their life. It is through the Bible that they began to understand what marriage is all about. It's in the Bible that they understood the value of human life. It's in the Bible that they understood how to love and respect one another. It is through the Scriptures that they learned right and wrong and began finding answers to some of life's ultimate questions like, where did we come to? come from? Why are we here? How do I have hope that goes beyond simply uh, being alive in a better tomorrow? And for centuries, billions of people have testified that the scriptures in the Bible have sustained them and guided them through their life. In addition, for centuries, billions of people in multiple cultures over these different time periods have found comfort in the words of scripture. When they go through the valley of death, whenever they find themselves diagnosed with a difficult illness, whenever they face financial hardship, billions of people have clung to the Bible and they have found strength over the centuries in multiple places from the Word of God. As a pastor, I walk with people through the stages of life. I have yet to find someone at the end of their life, whenever they know that death is near, tell me, hey, you know what, Lash, the the biggest mistake I ever made was following Christ. You know, if if I just would have lived life more on my own terms instead of doing what the Scriptures taught me, then I think my life would have been a lot better and a lot happier. I've never had anybody tell me that. In fact, they tell me the exact opposite. I have folks tell me, you know what, the biggest mistake I, I, I ever made was that for a lot of years I tried to do everything my own way. And I fought against God, and I fought against right, and I fought against those things. And, and I'm just, I, I wish I would have turned to God's way earlier. I find people at the end of life, they tell me, uh, even though I'm, I'm reaching the end, I have comfort, I have peace, I have hope because of my faith in Christ. That is powerful. Now, it would be one thing if this were just for a couple of generations. Back in the 60s, some people had some ideas, and we have like 50 years of tradition and thought on this. But this is centuries. This is 15 centuries worth of testimony. This is not just uh, a, a few million people. These are billions of people. These are people that have lived and died, and they have found strength and comfort and wisdom and hope and grace and love. They have formed the foundation of their lives through the teachings of Scripture. Now, you may be able to deny their interpretation, but you cannot deny someone their experience. People have lived and died by the truths of Scripture. And that is a powerful testimony to the fact that the Bible is an extraordinarily special book. In the early years of life, the Scriptures provide for us a foundation. They establish us with a foundation that will stand for a lifetime. In those working years, whenever we're trying to crawl to the top of success and whenever we're trying to raise the kids and make sure that uh, we do something of significance in our lifetime, the Scriptures remind you that there is more to life than just power and money and pleasure, that there are things that are real and last forever. And in our later years, the Scriptures comfort us and they remind us that there is forgiveness for the past, strength for today, and hope for all eternity. Fourth, the Bible is also special because of its amazing unity. 
There is an amazing progression of thought, an amazing unity that is found within the Scriptures. Now imagine, if you will, that we were to get some of the great thinkers in history together. Let's gather Aristotle and Muhammad and Buddha and Karl Marx and Freud, Elizabeth I, Shakespeare, Beethoven, Darwin, Einstein, Joan of Arc, Napoleon, Julius Caesar. Let's gather all these people together. And I suppose we also have a time machine of some sorts. And so we tell them, here's what we want you to do. We want you to write a book. And the book that you write is going to answer life's ultimate questions. It's going to provide for us a roadmap for the meaning of life. And we want you to write this book in the time period, in the place where you live. So our book is going to span 15 centuries. Our book is going to have 40-plus authors. Our book is going to come from different cultures, from different language groups, different perspective. That is going to be our book. And once you guys all finish, because you are all people that have been outstanding in some way or another, once you finish, we are going to compile that book, and we are going to see what is our unifying theme. What is the clear answer to this is what life is all about? And where is the clear progression of thought? And we're going to see how much accuracy you have between one another's thought patterns. What do you think that book would look like after 15 centuries of work? Well, I think the book would be all over the place. Aristotle would probably write a book called Questions. And Caesar and Napoleon and Joan of Arc would write First, Second, and Third Empires. And how to build one well. Buddha would write a book called Peace Out. And Marx would write a book called Govern Out. And Muhammad, well, he'd write the Quran. <laughs> and uh, Darwin and Einstein, they might write a book, Turtle's Time and the Absence Thereof. And Freud might write Fifty Shades of Grey. And so <laughs> all these different people would kind of come together. And I think you would have a hodgepodge of ideas that has no continuity. Now, here's one of the most remarkable things about the Bible is it has 40 different authors writing over 15 centuries. They were in different locations. They didn't have social media where they could be connected to one another either. In different locales, and they write, and the compilation of their writings has an astounding unity. It has a progression of thought, and it has an amazing accuracy between their thoughts. I want to introduce you to seven major events in Scripture that reveal to us the unity that is in our Holy Bible. And these seven events will kind of frame uh, this sermon series as we try to look at what is the big picture of Scripture. Now today, I'm going to look at each of these very quickly. In the coming weeks, we'll look at each of these individually. And as we compile the series, I think that you'll really have a much uh, greater understanding of what is the big picture and what is the Bible really all about. Well, the first event is creation. As Christians, we believe that God created the heavens and the earth, that he is separate from his creation, so God and the creation are not synonymous, and that he created us and he created the world with a divine design and there was a divine intent. So we are not just a random collection of life. There is a divine pattern to what was created. But into the goodness of crea creation came sin. 
sin slithered its way into the creation, and the shalom that was originally there was broken. There was a fracturing so that sin came upon all men, and the creation itself is saturated with the results of sin. And we see this in our world. We see a lot of evil. We see a lot of injustice. We see a lot of suffering and problems that trouble us and cause us to think, why is this all here? Well, it's because the original creation has been broken. But then you see throughout the Old Testament that God made several promises to people. Those promises are sometimes called covenants. He began early in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 9, with Noah. And he made a promise to Noah that he would, no longer dest- he would never again destroy the world by water. That instead of destruction, he would bring about redemption. In Genesis chapter 12, we see God making a promise to Abraham. Abraham, a very historical figure within history. We call him Father Abraham. Well, he wasn't a father at that time. In fact, he and his wife were barren, and they had gone through many, many years, and they were now aged and didn't have uh, any children. And God said to him, I'm going to give you a land, and from you I am going to make a great nation. I will bless you, and through you and through your nation I will bless all peoples. And then we see as the story begins to unfold in Exodus chapters 19 and 20 that God begins to make, God makes a promise to Moses and to the nation of Israel. And he says, those that hear my words and those that obey my commands and believe in me in their heart, they will be my dearly loved people. And it foreshadows how that those of us who believe in Christ and, and trust in him with our hearts will be the children of God. Well, as we move into the story of David, the great king of Israel, in Second Samuel chapter 7, God makes a promise to David. He says, David, you and your ancestors, you will reign forever and ever. And then as we go into the New Testament, we see that that fulfillment uh, is preceded uh, through Christ because he is the king of kings and the Lord of lords who will reign in heaven forever and ever. Well, the third C, and by the way, to make it easy for you, all these start with the letter C. Uh, The third C is Christ. There was also a Christ covenant. Some of the prophets, guys like Jeremiah, Isaiah, Joel, they began prophesying and talking about a Christ. Now that word Christ means an anointed one. The words anointed one were used at various times throughout Scripture. In fact, King David was called an anointed one. But these prophets began talking about an anointed one, a Christ that would come that would be different than anybody else who has come. That word Christ is sometimes synonymously used with the word Messiah. And we as Christians believe that the Christ, the anointed one, is Jesus. And this Christ that was prophesied about would be different than all the others that had come before him because he would come with the power and authority to forgive sin and he would give us a new heart so that it was not just our behavior that is being modified, but it is our heart that is being transformed. And then we reach the next major moment, the moment of the cross, that summit moment whenever we go up to Calvary and we see Jesus crucified. And as Christians, we believe that it was not just the death of of a good teacher or a wise man who believed in his cause to such an extent that he was willing to die for it. But we see the cross as the death of God's own son, that he died on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins and mine, that on the cross he took on the sins of the world and he took on the wrath, he absorbed the wrath of God intended for sin, and that there he, he took 
on death, which if you go back in Scripture, you find that one of the results of the fall of man all the way back in Genesis is that death comes to all people. So we all have an appointment with death, and apart from Christ, apart from his hope, we all face the eternality of death, but Christ on the cross takes on death, and he dies in our place, which leads us to the next major event of Scripture, the conquering. It's what we celebrate at Easter, whenever Christ conquers death. Instead of facing the certainty of eternal death because Christ has taken on our sins and overcome death, the Scriptures say that all who believe in Him are placed in Christ by the Heavenly Father. In Romans 6, it outlines that for us, that God sees us in Christ, so we are righteous in Christ, we are forgiven in Christ, we live eternally in in Christ because Christ has done for you and me what we could never do for ourselves. He has taken the punishment of sin. He has overcome death so that all who believe in him might have forgiveness of their sins and their heart transformed through the grace of God. And then we see the next major moment, the church. Christ gathers his disciples together. The only organization that Jesus ever founded was the church. And he gives the church two major missions. One, the church is to go and make disciples. They're to go to the uttermost part of the earth and tell the story of Jesus and make disciples and share with people what the love of Christ looks like and what the story of Christ is all about. And then the church is also together in local communities like this where believers in Christ come together and we study the Word of God and we encourage each other and we minister to one another and we live life together. And and we, as the church, are a community that gives you a glimpse of what it looks like to be a, a follower of Jesus Christ. And that is part of the progression that Jesus instituted within the Great Commission. And then at the end of the Bible, there's that book that whenever you get to it, you go, I have no clue what this book is all about. What in the world is this all about? Well, the scriptures teach us that Christ will come again. The first time Christ came, he came to heal the heart. And the first time, whenever Christ died on the cross, he brought redemption to our soul. He brought forgiveness to our heart. And yet we still find ourselves in a frustrating predicament. Because even though I have been forgiven for my sins, even though I am a follower of Christ, I still live in a world where there is a lot of sin. There's this injustice. There's this suffering. There's this difficulty. And those things that I want to do, I often don't do. And I find myself battling against uh, my sinful desires, even though I I love Christ. And in Romans 8, it even talks about how, how the creation itself groans out, longing to be released from a bondage. And when Christ comes again, he will make all things new. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. The shalom that was broken in Genesis will once again be restored. And we will live in a world where there is not this injustice and not this suffering, but where all things will bring glory and honor to our Lord. That's the big picture. That's the the story of of Scripture and, and, and what God has done for us, who he is, and how that applies in such a relevant way to our lives. Now, during the Easter season, we, we celebrate God. The star of Easter, the star of Scripture, is our Heavenly Father. And, and the Lord gave us a very tangible way to celebrate this. He, he gave us the, the Lord's Supper. And He encouraged believers, and by the way, I should say this about the Lord's Supper, 
the, the Lord's Supper is a sacred ceremony that Christians have been going through for, for 2,000 years. And it's for those that, that believe in Christ, to those that are committed to Christ, those that are, are public about their faith in Christ. It's for believers. And so if you're not yet at that point, later on in the service we're going to take the Lord's Supper. And if you're not yet at that point, uh, we respect that. We want to continue talking with you, and we hope that you'll come to that point. But if you're not yet there, then please don't engage in the Lord's Supper. It may be that as others are engaging in the Lord's Supper, uh, you want to make that personal commitment yourself to Christ, and you can come see me, and I I would be glad to pray with you and talk with you, and and you can become a follower of Christ today. In fact, we had somebody do that uh, in the 830 service. It was a beautiful, beautiful moment uh, in their lives. But the Lord has given us the Lord's Supper as a tangible way to remember and to take within ourselves the meaning of everything that I've talked about today. So whenever we think about the Lord's Supper, you have the the body and blood of Jesus Christ, and it it reminds us to look back and remember who God is and all that He's done for us. It also causes us to look within and recenter. Recenter our soul, recenter our heart. Uh, Once again, get our thoughts aligned with who God is and what He's done for us. And then the Lord's Supper also encourages us to look forward and rejoice to the fact that in Christ there is real hope. So much of what we call hope is simply wishful thinking for a better tomorrow. Uh, some, Some secularists attach hope to, if I'm alive, I have hope. But as Christians, we have hope that even transcends life. It's hope in Jesus Christ. And whenever we take of the Lord's Supper, we're also reminded that some of those people that have gone before us and gone to heaven, we will see them again because of Christ. So in a few moments, I'm going to invite those who are followers of Christ to come and take of the Lord's Supper. That's going to be our time of commitment, our invitation time today. But before we do that, I I want to read to you this passage that really lays out for us what the Lord's Supper is all about. 1 Corinthians chapter 11 Verse 23, the Apostle Paul writes, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and said, This is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So the bread in the Lord's Supper represents the body of Christ that was broken for us. And then he goes on to say in verse 25, In the same way, after supper, He also took the cup and said, This cup is the new covenant established by my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the juice uh, represents the blood of Christ. It represents the Christ covenant and the hope that we have and, and the fact that the Messiah, the Christ, would come and that forgiveness could come to our soul and that a new heart could be birthed within us in Christ. And that's what the blood represents. And then verse 26 says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord. You proclaim the Lord's death. And you also proclaim the fact that you have hope in his coming again. Because the passage says you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let's stand together as we bow our heads and we have this time of commitment. Our deacons are going to come and they're going to stand here at the stations of the Lord's Supper. There's three in the room, one to my left, one in the center, one to the right. After I pray and when the Holy Spirit releases you, I would invite you to come and receive the Lord's Supper. Now here's, 
Here's the instructions because we may do it a little differently than some churches. We invite you to come, take of the Lord's Supper. They'll, they'll give you the juice and the bread. And then we invite you to go back to your seat. You as an individual, you as a family, uh, perhaps some friends together can have a moment of prayer and reflection. And then whenever you are ready, you go ahead, you have the liberty to take of the Lord's Supper and then join the band in singing praises to our Heavenly Father. I'll be here at the front. If there's anything that I may pray with you about, encourage you in, it's always my honor to do so. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for who you are. We thank you, Father, that you created us with a divine design, with a divine intent. Lord, that you didn't just create everything and then say good luck, but that you intervened into our scene so that we might be redeemed. And we thank you, Father, for your Son, Jesus Christ. We thank you, Lord, that he is the anointed one. He is the Son of God. He is the one who has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. And we thank you, Lord, that he calls us to more than just a set of beliefs. And he calls us to more than just a behavior code, but that he calls us to new life and a heart that can be transformed through his power And so, Lord, today, as we take of the Lord's Supper, we are reminded of who Christ is and what he has done for us. And, Lord, we also are mindful that we are a church and that this group of believers that is here in this room is part of the Murphy Road Baptist Church. And you have called us together to live in community with one another and to go out and share the good news of Christ with the world. And we also are reminded today that you will not leave us here but that you will come again, that all things will be made new, and that the injustices and darkness that we face today are only temporary, that there is hope in you. And so, Father, we take the Lord's Supper, remembering who you are. It's in Jesus' name that we pray and that we worship. Amen.